Stay there, church. Close your eyes. Now try and stretch and strain your vision to see into the throne room of our King and our Lord. Try and see him in his glory right now with your eyes closed. We're not going to rush from this moment. So what is the glimpse of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ right now that is compelling you to sing? Maybe it's his holiness, his righteousness, his purity. Maybe you know it's a God whose storehouse of mercy is eternally big. Maybe it's that he's the God of grace. He's the God of love. Maybe as you're looking into the throne room and you see our holy Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know what he has had to come and restore unto himself. And you look around and you see the broken world that you live in. And you see sitting on the throne a God of justice who is who is making everything right. He's going to correct all the wrongs that mankind brings into this world through their sin. Maybe that's what you see. Well, one thing is for sure, church, and it's this. He is worthy, worthy, worthy of all our praise. Father in heaven, we approach you now as our King and our Lord. And we say, worthy is your name. Father, open our eyes to the glory of who you are, your transcendent nature, the things that don't make sense to us. Blow our minds for who you are, Lord Jesus. Lord, as we open your word now, I pray that you would cut us with it that you would convict us with it, that you would bring healing, that you would use your word in such a way, Lord, that would honor you and glorify yourself in this church. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out on us now, I pray, that you would stand between me and the church and that they would hear you speaking through your word into their lives, receiving everything you have for us today. Prepare our hearts now to hear from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have your seat. Hey, listen, our annual theme, as you see it in front of us right now, it's God's presence bringing transcendence that changes people, that transforms us. And there is no transformation, there is no everlasting transformation that can happen to us if we are not transformed by the mighty power and work of the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ as he pours himself out on us. And that's our annual theme. We want, we want the Bible, as Hebrews chapter 4 says, of the living and active and sharp as any two-edged sword, word of God to penetrate our hearts and reveal to us who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And so we're now five weeks into a sermon series called Built Together. It's our desire to see our church built together under the headship of Jesus Christ. 
And we started by looking into Revelation. So we have the letter that we're in right now um, that was written by the Apostle Paul. And we started the series by, by fast-forwarding 40 years, four decades, to where we see um, John, one of Jesus' disciples, on the island of Patmos. He's recording a letter for the church of Ephesus that, he and, that Jesus um, Excuse me, John is recording the letter for Jesus that he intends to be delivered to the church of Ephesus to make them aware of two things. Number one, he is celebrating with them all of the wonderful work and ministry they've done, they've done for him on his behalf. So that was the commendation. And then he follows up with, um, with this. He says, but listen, church of Ephesus, while you got all of that right over the course of the last 40 years, you forgot why you were doing it. And so, and so he brings a rebuke. And he says, listen, it's time to change. You need to come back to me. You need to remember why you're doing it. You cannot forsake your relationship with me any longer. And so come back to it. That's what he says to the, to the church of Ephesus in the book of the Revelation. And so the last four weeks we've spent, um, your staff and elders have spent in the first chapter of Ephesians. And um, just, as a, just as a reminder, this is what we have seen in, um, in the first chapter. Paul is recounting the mighty works of Jesus Christ and the blessings that flow from him. We see early on in the chapter that he has adopted, he has had a predetermined plan for adoption to bring us who are his children into relationship with him. He made a way for us to be in relationship with him by redeeming us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He adopted, he chose us beforehand to adopt us, made a way for us to be adopted through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then the moment, the moment he rushes upon us, he gives us his Holy Spirit to mark us and to seal us as his own. That's the first chapter. Plus, Last week we see, um, as Jasper preached, the Apostle Paul um, sharing a prayer that he prayed, the first prayer he prayed over the church of Ephesus. And in this prayer, there are two verses, as I've studied out the passage, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, there, there are two verses that just keep jumping off the pages at me as it, as it comes from Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus. And it's verse 19 in chapter 1, and it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, and, a, and has given him the name that is above every name, and that's Jesus Christ. Two very, very powerful verses for us um, that, that, that propel us into today's passage. The greatness of his power toward us who believe, working in his great might through Jesus Christ. And so here we are today in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 looking at the greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. And so here's where I want to start. I want you to think about what death is, physical death. I have a dear aunt. Her name is Shirley. I'm sure I've talked about her before because she is so dear to me. Um, But having watched her, watched both of her parents die, um, I was in a conversation with her regarding death. 
And I noticed, you know, you go to funerals with your family. I noticed with Aunt Shirley that she and my uncle, Uncle Ed, every time they walked up to an open casket, they would touch the body that's in the casket on the hand. And they did this for this purpose. It's a reminder to them that this is not it. It's not it. So I took their advice on that. So I started doing that as well. Well, in 2000, I gave my late wife her last kiss on the cheek. She was killed in a car accident, laying in a casket. Just before we're closing the casket, I walk up and I give her a kiss on the cheek. I don't know how to tell you how awesome that was. Because death did not hold her. If you touch a dead person, you know it is nothing but an earthly container for our spirits to live in that the Lord desperately desires to rescue. It's cold. It feels like clay. It says that this is not the end. This is only that which I have given you to live in while you walk out the course of your life here on earth. While physical death is a very sobering reality, as I think about my late wife, and I'm sure you have those in your life that have gone and now exist in eternity, some with Jesus Christ and some maybe not. But while physical death, our physical death and exit from this world is a sobering reality, there is something that is far bigger and has much more significant and eternal consequence than just losing this shell that we live in. It's an eternal reality that comes with eternal consequences. Spiritual death is a far more serious issue than our physical death. Before Christ, we are dead. We are dead. But God has acted on our behalf. He has poured himself out on us. And he has made a way for us to escape that eternal separation that exists because of who we are apart from Jesus Christ. That church is a big deal. That God would act on our behalf so that we can escape the death that leads to eternal separation from Him. Oh Lord, I pray that in these next moments your transcendent power would pour off the pages of your word and would penetrate the hearts of each one that is here. Lord, meet us where we are. Bring about everlasting and God-glorifying change in our lives, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me now, if you will, to to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read through from 1 to 10. And so here's what the Scripture says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you w- among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You know, this is one of those passages, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, or you're someone who marks up Scripture, this is one of those that is tormenting to the person that underlines and highlights. This passage should be completely underlined, completely highlighted, completely boxed in, marked up on the margins, because this church, as far as I believe, is one of the most clear passages of Scripture that lays out for us who we are apart from Christ, our need for Christ, that he pours out his grace on us because of our need for him, and then he assigns things for us beforehand. Even before we come into existence, he has assigned for us the very things that he intends for us to walk into. The most complete passage, I believe, in Scripture that speaks to what I want to call the good news and the good do's. This is a passage that you, if you want to know how to, how to create a testimony that speaks to the greatness of God and, his, and of who he is and, 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 and um, as he pours himself out on you, in your testimony, this is it. You're dead. You need a Jesus. He acted. And now he says, I want you to go and do the same for me. That's it. So let's get into this, Okay. Let's take a look together at verses 1 through 3, and there are, there are a handful of four impactful truths that we need to accept about ourselves and our Lord. All right, and here's the first one. We must accept that without Jesus Christ, we are dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead. Dead. You were born dead. You were born into this world without any ability to make any choices, even to take your next breath. You were born into this world physically alive, but spiritually you are dead. You were dead. 
And death here is the full package. When you look, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is the full package. You were dead because you were born into sin and trespassing, and you are dead because you sin and trespass. Trespass in the original language means this. It means to slip or to fall, failing to grasp the truth and falling away. It means to take the wrong road when the right one is extremely obvious. And here's the, way I, here's the best way for me to look at it. Um, I ran a Tough Mudder a number of years ago, and there was, a, there was one obstacle in particular that was a mound of mud, and it was completely mud. There is absolutely no way, apart from the help of someone else, to make it up across this mound of mud because they had, they had soaked this hill of dirt and made it completely muddy. No way. No way. Spiritually speaking, here's the way I look at that. It's as though we're standing in front of this hill that we need to gain traction to get up, and we're holding the hose that's soaking the hill and making it muddy. We are responsible for making the hill muddy. We are responsible for making that which is set before us impossible to go after. It means taking the wrong road when the right one is obvious. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Sin in the original language means to miss the target. It's a failure to be able to go after what we ought to go after, especially when it's clear we cannot do it. We are incapable. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. What does dead look like? I want you to imagine in front of yourself a pool of the most nasty and filthy substance you can think of, okay? I'm going to keep it clean. I don't like tar, and here's why. I don't like tar because of the scent, number one, and number two, probably more importantly, is because of how sticky it is. I imagine myself being dropped into this pool of tar. And as I'm in this pool of tar, I'm feeling the stickiness between my fingers and behind my ears and behind my knees. It's an awful, awful place. It's hot. It's smelly. It's nasty. I don't want to be in it. I find my, try and find my way out of it, but it's one of the most nasty places that I could find myself. There's no separating myself from it once I'm in it. I can't escape it. But this is who we are. Stuck. Stuck in a pool in a world of sin and trespassing without any escape. We walk and we follow the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's where we lived before Christ in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath. So as you see yourself in this pool, because that's where you are, in this pool of this cesspool of mess of sin and trespass, think of it in these terms. When you when you see yourself in it. The lines of who you are physically in it blur so much with what you're surrounded in that you can't tell the difference between yourself and the sin and the trespasses that are swirling around you. 
You are that. It is you. You have no capacity to change that truth because that's what you are. We were by nature children of wrath. Charles Manson. He's the convicted, he's convicted of masterminding the murder and the deaths of nine people. Jim Jones was a cult leader responsible for the brainwashing and mass suicide of over 900 people. Hitler, responsible for the extermination of six million people simply because he didn't like them. This is one that was new to me when I took a geography course at the University of Shippensburg, the Rape of Nanking. In 1938, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded Nanking, China. They seized it, and over the course of the next six weeks, they disarmed it, they murdered and raped the people of Nanking. Some estimates exceed 300,000 people. Mindless, senseless. Sometimes the dead... Death is hard to see. When Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, You hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs. You look really awesome on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is what John Stott says about the dead stuck in their trespasses and sin. It's an expression, a whole social value system, which is alien to God. It permeates, it, in, it dominates the non-Christian, it dehumanizes. It's through oppression, it's a repudiation of God, it's completely removing God. It's amoral. No absolutes in this world, in this cesspool of sin and trespass. It is subhuman, no value system. You know, when we think about those that I just named off, the Imperial Army of Japan, Hitler, Jim Jones, Charles Manson, that sounds like a very sorry bunch, isn't it? But 1 Corinthians says this, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Listen, that's who we were before Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says it this way, and we're going to study this next year. It says this of those who believe, or those before Christ, they were futile in their thinking, darkened in their minds, have no understanding, understanding they're alienated from God because of the ignorance and the hardness of heart, their callousness, their pursuits of the sensual, And they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do not underestimate the sickness and the blackness of your own heart and soul apart from Jesus Christ. Because while we want to look at that list of people I just read off, we need to to include ourselves in that list. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we are sin and we are trespass. And because that's what we are, that's what we do. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand? That's our heart before Jesus Christ.
This is what death looks like. It's a dark, dark place that drove the Apostle Paul to say, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Well, no one has the capacity to look in a pool and, and differentiate from, between, from one person to the next because we all look the same. Blackened in the heart in need of a Savior. Wouldn't it be an absolute terror if that was the end? Let's move on to point number two, verses four to seven. We must accept that God acted when we could not. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, at, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hey, let's go back to that cesspool of trespass and sin. Who would ever want to stick their hand in that stuff? And why? But God, because of his great love, he reached in. And because of him being so rich in mercy, God reached into the eternal storehouse of his mercy. So that he could show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. And he acted on our behalf. What did God do? He looked down into the world, into this cesspool of trespass and sin, and he saw you. He saw you. He was able to see through all of the mess and see the one that, according to Ephesians chapter 1, he knew he was going to claim as his own and adopt. He sees his adopted children in that mess. And because of his love and his rich mercy, he not only stuck his hand down in there to raise you out, he jumped in and he came after you. And he said, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take all this mess and I'm going to bring it upon myself. And I'm going to wash you clean. And I'm going to bring you out of this. And I'm going to set your feet on a rock. I'm going to give you a firm place to stand. And I'm going to give you a new life in me, says Jesus Christ. God acted. He acted on our behalf. He saw you and he said, here I come. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and powerless to do anything, he came. Remember that prayer in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where Paul prayed over the church of Ephesus? He said, and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants to express his power toward us who believe and bring us out of that mess. Just as he did with Jesus Christ when he worked it in him and raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It says that very same thing to us in chapter 2. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He lifts us beyond the mess of this world 
and grants to us a new life in Jesus Christ. Hey, if you want to pray a prayer over anyone, over yourself, if you want to make sure you're praying a prayer that's theologically sound and is not selfish and is not prideful, pray that prayer at the end of um, Ephesians chapter 1. Pray it over yourself and your family that he would work his great might, that he, what he did with Jesus Christ, Jesus was dead, you know, and he raised him from the dead. We are dead, you know, and he raises us to life. Jesus was seated with him in heaven, and that's what he does for us. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Why? Because he wanted to express to each one of us the immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of his love toward us. That's what he wanted to do. You know what's pretty amazing to me? When I, see, when I see myself in that mess, God doesn't love me anymore today, some 35 years later, than he did in that moment. He loves me today as much as he did before, because he knew I was his. And he's going to love me 10 years from now just as much as he loves me today. Nothing changes the love of Christ It's always really big and really awesome. Nothing changes it. I don't care how dark your past is. I don't care about the size of the storehouse of your sin. Here's what I know. The eternal storehouse of God's mercy and his love and his grace is way, way bigger and and brighter than the darkness of any storehouse of your past sin. Because you are his. You're his. You are his. Apart from Christ, church, we are dead, but God acted on our behalf. And he did something really awesome through the life of Jesus Christ. The death and his resurrection. I'm so glad he acted, aren't you? Hey, here's the third. We must accept that our salvation is a gift. This is a popular passage for all of us, isn't it? Verses 8 and 9 say this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when you look at that passage, what words jump off the page at you? Here are some that jump off at me. Grace... Saved, faith. Three really big words. Let's call these smaller words. Not your own doing. Has nothing to do with you. Works. This isn't something we work for. Boast. Because, hey, we all love to boast. That's our go-to. When we're laying in that cesspool of a mess and we're rolling around in it, we're trying to figure out what in the world's going on, and we catch a glimpse of Jesus and we say, I just saw Jesus. That's why God saved me, because I saw him. That's not true. You didn't have the capacity to open your eyes to see the greatness of God. 
He poured himself out on you. He came after you and he brought you out. That's what grace is. It's his undeserved favor. His undeserved favor toward you when you were dead. God does not expect this, those of us who are determined that we can work to make ourselves cleaner. He doesn't say, hey, person, I want you to get yourself out of there, and I want you to clean yourself up before you come to me, your holy God. He never says that. This is what he says. He says, you can't clean yourself up, so I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me, and then I'm going to clean you up. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have the capacity to. You're too much of a mess. He doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up and come to him. He comes to us and cleans us up. Name another institution, another kingdom that does something like that. You can't name one. Where? To come into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything to get there. In order to make the team, you have to try out. In order to be even good enough to consider trying out, you have to work really hard in order, in order to try out, in order to make the team, in order to earn the position, in order to, and it goes on and on. We go to school so that we can get the degree, so that we can go on to college, so that we can get another degree, so that we can step out and have a resume that we're able to lay in front of an employer as a part of an interview process in order to get the job in order to do really well so I can get the raise and the promotion. This past summer, we did what was called the upside-down kingdom, and someone, Kirsten Stewart, she said, what is the upside-down kingdom? What is this all about? Listen, that's the kingdom of this world. Every other religion, you have to work to earn, to prove, not with Jesus Christ. You turn that kingdom upside down and you see the glory of his kingdom where it's dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ pouring out on you and his mercy as he saves you by his grace and he says, here is your faith as a gift. Take it. And you can't help it because it's irresistible. He gifts you with his faith, your faith, so that you can be in relationship with him, so that you can be in a kingdom that is not determined on you doing something in order to get into it. Every other institution, every other thing is dependent on you doing something in order to earn but not the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He says, for by grace, you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So there's no working for it, and there's no boasting about it. Even catching a glimpse and saying, I saw Jesus and I gave my life to him, that's a boast. You don't have the capacity to even open your eye to see him. He has to do that for you. Man, I love the grace of the Lord. Even in relationship with him, uh, you know what I want to see? I want to see myself still dripping with that mess that the Lord brought me out of. But his grace is so much bigger than that. And he has washed me clean and he has washed you clean. There is no past that you drag around with you that compares to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
that you were dead, church, and God acted on your behalf. He gifted to you your faith. Your salvation is a gift. And then number four, and this is it, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must accept we are created to serve. So, we're in the eternal kingdom. We're in that upside-down kingdom. We're in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says this. He says, now you're here. Now let's get after the things I want to get after. That's what he says. And what's really amazing about this passage, even before we came into relationship with him. He had already prepared beforehand the very things that he intended for us to walk into. And so you might be sitting there saying, I'm inadequate. I'm, I want to be this. I'm looking at the giftings of that person, and I want to be able to do that. Shame on me for failing here and not reaching out there. But God has fashioned you and is fashioning you to fulfill the very purpose that he laid out for you and, the, and to fulfill the very work that he created beforehand for you to do. So we should never be upset for who we are in Christ and what he has us to do because he is walking us through his sovereign plan for each one of us to fulfill the very thing that he laid out for us to do in the first place. You are fashioned to fit the very things that Jesus created for you to accomplish. So when we look at that, we read that passage that we should walk in them. So what are the things that we're supposed to walk in? That's where my head goes. Here's some real simple ones. Then we're going to get to a hard one. Husbands are not fashioned to sit around the house and not lead. That's not what he intended for husbands. He intended that they would love their wives as Christ loved the church. He intended that they would raise their kids under the admonition of the Lord and not exasperate them. Wives weren't fashioned to lead the home. They were to be a helpmate for their husbands. Kids, he didn't fashion you to teach your parents how they should parent you, even though I know in many cases you think you know better. You don't. And that's not what God called you to anyway. You know, we get so wrapped up in the will of the Lord. What's the will of the Lord? What does he want me to do? Well, where does he want me to go to college? Well, should we, should we buy that house or should we finish our kitchen floor? Yeah, you know what? I, I agree. The Lord is concerned that we make wise decisions regarding these things. But when he says, when he says, God prepared beforehand the good works that he intended us to walk in, this is what I believe he is saying. These are works that we can be sure of that God is calling us to. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says to us, I've handed to you this message of reconciliation, that you were dead and Christ came and he laid his life down for you. He has redeemed you. 
And now you walk in relationship with him. That's the message of reconciliation. And he says that we are to be ambassadors of that to each other and to the world that's watching on. That's a pretty simple and very clear work that he intends for us to walk into. And of course, we all know uh, the mission of our church is this, and it's Matthew chapter 28, that we're to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We're to make disciples for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's what's really, really scary, church. You know what that means? Let's go back to our cesspool of uh, trespasses and sin. This is what that means. It means that you have to get in there. It means that no matter how messy and how scary, and you look back over the course of your life and you see the stuff you did at once, and you desperately want to avoid that, what God is saying to you There are people in there that are mine that I have claimed that I want you to go after with me. That's the Great Commission. Not being afraid of the past, but diving into the very things that the Lord has created for you to do. And I'm sure right now, if we were to sit here and think for three seconds, the names of unsaved people in your life would start popping into your head. And I know when you look down into that that pool of, of, of... of sin and trespass, you can't differentiate one person from the next. You can't see and know who those are who are adopted by Jesus Christ and, then, and those who are not. What he says is he, has, he says, go. It's time to go. It's time to get after it. It's time to work. God has and is fashioning you to go back into the mess with him. And get dirty and go after the loss. But he says this, you don't have to go in there alone. Isaiah 41, verses 9 and 10 say this, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his farthest corners. And I said to you, he says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. I have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That messy situation that he wants you to walk into, he says, I'm with you. Don't worry about this. You're going to get your hands dirty. It's going to sting a little bit, but his promise is, I am with you, and I have given you and trained you, and caused in you to have the ability to go after the things that I want you to go after. And that's the loss. Prepared beforehand. God did it. And remember, remember this. Your life story is not about you. God is writing his story of your life. Your life is not about you. It's about him and his glory. And as he has cleaned you up, He wants you to take on the look and the likeness of Jesus Christ more and more every day you walk. Taking the fullness of the message to each other and to the lost is a really big deal to Jesus Christ. We were dead. God acted. He gifted us with our faith so that we could go after him. So let me say this. I've seen Capital C Church this happen over the course of my 
number of decades of life here on this earth. There are churches that latch on to verses 1 through 9. And they love to see, man, I was dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God acted, and he stepped in, and he gave me his righteous. He brought brought me out of the cesspool of sin and trespass. He gifted me to my faith. And let's praise the Lord. And they get stuck. They get stuck in the focus of the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lord. And that's where they are. And then there are churches that all they can think about is verse 10. What are we supposed to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do next? How am I supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? Church, I'm telling you, you cannot read verses 1 to 9 and skip 10, and you cannot focus on 10 without taking into account verses 1 to 9. If your whole life is determined by verse 10, what am I supposed to do? All right, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. Here's what's going to happen to you. One day, you're going to stand before the Lord, and he's going to say, hey, nice job, way to go, way to get after all all of the things that the church of Ephesus did. But guess what? You forgot verses 1 to 9. You forgot about your relationship with me. They have to go together, and I have a confession to make. As an elder in your church, and I'm speaking personally, the elders didn't get together and have this discussion about this, but I'm speaking very personally. I've been on pastoral staff and an elder for 11 years. And if I, and if I put on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being how well do we do in this church, at expressing what we're supposed to do for Christ, we're probably eight or nine. And then if you sit next to it, you sit next to it, a scale of one to ten, one, how much we proclaim the good news of Christ being not at all, and ten being a whole lot, we're probably a two or a three. Well, I want to say this. It's my heart's desire that we would be a 10 on sharing the good news and we would be a 10 on sharing the good news. They go to other church. God's transcendent nature blows our minds. When we see what he did, he brought his presence to bear in our life when we did not deserve it when we were as ugly as the world is, he says, I want to be with you. And I can't, I can't get enough of that truth that he did that for me. Because I can tell you this, that makes me want to run into verse 10 with all my might instead of being weighed down with what I have to do next. So church, as we leave here, Take the fullness of the message of this passage, verses 1 to 10. And let's get after, let's get after what Jesus Christ has called us to together, okay? Father in heaven, thank you for the transcendent nature of who you are as you bring it to us. As you pour yourself out on us. Lord, may we be overcome by, your, by what you did for us when we were dead gifting us our faith, and then together, Lord, shoulder to shoulder, on and arm with great unity, running into the very things that you created beforehand for us to do as a church. Lord, may your word impact us where we are, 
and bring everlasting change for your sake and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.